don't lose your crown. Don't lose your crown. Uh, when I always try to read, you know, maybe a book or two a month, try at least if I can. And so I came across this little book. It was actually recommended by another pastor friend of mine some while back. And uh, so I had ordered it and just had it on my shelf for a while. And uh, at the new year, I said, okay, what book am I going to start reading now? I had one or two in mind and started reading those. And then I saw this little book by Dr. Warren Worsby. If you ever heard, he used to do Back to the Bible. Uh, and, and also he was Pastor Moody Church uh, for, for a while. And so um, anyways, uh, come to find out, he wrote a little book called Don't Lose Your Crown uh, and the Life uh, or the Bible Study of King Saul. And it was just a little over 100 pages, and I thought, well, let's see what's he, he if you've ever read anything of Warren Worsby, uh, he's very pastoral in how he comes across. He's, it's not too deep, but he gives you some nuggets to chew on along the way. Uh, but it's, I think, it's just a blessing. So I just, I'll be honest with you, I was blessed reading it. I said, wow, this is kind of an unexpected blessing. And uh, I said, you know, there's some great value in learning the life of King Saul. And so uh, we're going to be starting tonight on that again. So this is going to be not so much a sermon as it's going to be more of a Bible study approach to this. But I think uh, some great value is we, you know, you can't go wrong digging in the Word of God. And so that's our our blessing tonight. Turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8. And so we're going to be looking at a couple verses here just at the beginning, uh, just to kind of set the context here. And then we're going to dig into the life of King Saul. A uh, very complicated character. And so uh, he, uh, I was telling someone earlier that, uh, you know, Saul reigned for 40 years. And so we will not be doing the series in 40 years, but maybe 40 weeks. You know, we'll do one week per year. of No, <laughs> maybe not that long, but uh, no wonder David hid from Saul, you know. So, <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, we're gonna, I think there's some value in studying this. And we'll take at least a few weeks going through uh, through this. And I think it'll be a blessing. Uh, let's start by reading, uh, follow me in 1 Samuel chapter 8. We'll begin at verse 1 and then follow along. And we're just going to skip through a couple of verses here to get the context. Verse 1 says, And it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now skip down with me to verse um, 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah. And said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel. And they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And Samuel said unto, uh, the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people, and all that they say unto thee. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. So there starts our beginning. We're going to kind of look at the background of how Saul became king in, a, in the first place. A very, in a sense, unlikely candidate in many aspects. But we're going to see kind of how Israel got into this position and how Saul ended up becoming king. So in your notes as you're following along there, the first of all, the life of King Saul is really a study of contrast. A study of contrast. There's a lot of contrasting when you compare Saul and, of course, David. You also look at the comparison between his relationship between Saul and Samuel. Saul and his son, Jonathan, even. Uh, Saul and his daughter, Michael, who was married off to David. There's a lot of interesting contrasts and comparisons. Even at the end of his life, do you remember what, where Saul ended up right before he died? He goes to visit a mysterious figure. Who was that? 
the witch of Endor. We're going to see these contrasts that are going on. There's a lot of interesting twists and turns to his story. So the life of King Saul is a study of contrast. He's very unpredictable in that regard. And as we study this, we're going to be going one way, and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, what about this? What about that? So it's, it's going to be really interesting. Anyways, with that, the life of King Saul really is a warning to us that we cannot rebel against God and get away with it. <laughs> that's, that's the punchline of this whole story, this whole study. The life of King Saul is a warning to us that we cannot rebel against God and get away with it. Uh, as we see, King Saul started out actually fairly decent. It's like you're kind of rooting for him. Okay, you got a good start. Keep going, keep going. And then all of a sudden he like tanks. And uh, just an interesting thing. But we ultimately was a rebellion that he had against God himself, trying to do it his way. But you can't rebel against God and get away with it. And here's the thing. Don't lose your crown. This is the big message of it. Don't lose your crown. When God has given us uh, such a privilege to be uh, his servants, to follow him as he's called us to do, don't throw it away. So how important it is for us to do that. So don't lose your crown. So let's, uh, let's dig a little bit into this now. First of all, let's look at Israel's cry for a king. Israel's cry for a king. So we mentioned this here, uh, that the, the children of Israel, they were saying, we want a king. Uh, it says here in verse 5, Behold, our old, now make us a king to judge us like us all the, like all the nations. And so in that, why do they need a king? Okay, so we've got to ask those questions. <clears throat> Remember that, uh, first of all, there was a need in, here's in your notes, there was a need for stability. There was a need for stability in the country. Why is that? Because up until this point, uh, and this is going to be a little interactive tonight, so you tell me, what was the life like in Israel amongst the children of Israel? What was the life and society like? How were they governed? How was Israel governed before this point? What was that? Judges, yeah. So there were judges. We think of like um, uh, Deborah and Barak, for example. You think of Gideon. We think of uh, all these heroes, for example, Samson even. Uh, and then even at the time of judges, you have Samuel, who in a sense was a judge. In fact, here in verse 1, he even has his sons as judges over Israel. Okay, and uh, we'll say a little bit about that. But ultimately, there was a big problem in Israel, and maybe we'll do a study on the book of Judges itself one time, but there's a, you'll find there's a cycle. Israel's doing good, and then they fall into sin, and what happens? After they fall into sin, God brings some foreign army or entity to oppress them, to judge them, if you will, discipline them. They cry out to God, and God brings a deliverer, a judge, who overthrows that oppressor, like the Midianites, for example, or the Canaanites, and all of a sudden things are well for a while, maybe a period of some years, and then they forget God and the cycle repeats itself. And so there was really not a lot of stability. There was a lot of, remember the t 12 tribes were, were divided. Remember after Joshua and the children of Israel come in, they divide the land. Read the last half of the book of Joshua, and you'll, and you'll find the land allotments that are there. But ultimately, if you could sum up what life was like during the time of the judges and up until the time of Samuel even, it says in Judges 21, I think I put in your notes there, it's a, uh, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which is right in his own eyes. It was very unstable. Uh, you didn't know, maybe each group was a little bit different. By the way, if you want a, a quick outline of the book of Judges, it's very simple. It's, think of like Clint Eastwood, all right? It was the good, the bad, and the ugly. 
That's exactly what life was like in the book of Judges. You start out the first couple of chapters, things were going pretty good. They were good judges even. And then it was the bad. You throw in some different characters like Gideon, uh, he made some in- or Jephthah. He made some interesting uh, decisions. And then you got Samson. And then it just got downright ugly. And uh, they were basically, the tribe of Benjamin was killed off. And then they had to go and kidnap girls to marry them. And it was just a mess by the time you get to the end of Book of Judges. And so it was very unstable. Now you come into 1 Samuel. And what are we, who are we presented with? We're presented with Hannah. We're introduced to Hannah. And she cried for a child. For this child I prayed and Samuel was born. But who was the religious leader of Israel during this time? Who was the religious leader of Israel in, in the beginning of 1 Samuel? What was his name? Before, who, who did Samuel uh, stay with? Who was the priest? What was his name? Eli. Exactly. Eli is the priest. And so... Uh, people did answer them. There was that religious authority that was there. But the stability was really this. It was two aspects. It was physical stability. There was threats from opposing armies, things like that. Uh, and also like crops and livestock. But also there was a spiritual instability as well going on. Because even Eli, he couldn't contain his own sons. Okay? That was the, the issue going on. So there was a need for stability. The second thing is this. The people called for a king. But why do they call for a king? We've got to ask that question. Why do they call? Yes, there was a need for stability. But why do they call for a king? There's three reasons. Three reasons that the people call for a king. First of all, Samuel's sons were corrupt. Did you know that Samuel had sons? It's one of those stories that we kind of like gloss over really quickly. But this is really, really important as we look at how King Saul became King Saul. All right. So look with me in 1 Samuel 8, verses 2 and 3. And it's talking about uh, Samuel's sons who were judges over Israel. Now the name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of a second was Abiah. And they were judges in Beersheba. That is southern Israel. That's actually where Abraham has settled, where, the, um, where, where his tents were and all that. And then verse 3, And his sons walked not in his ways, but took aside after lucre, after money, took bribes and perverted judgment. His sons were corrupt. So that's the first reason why people call for a king. They were corrupt. Now let me ask you a question this. This is obvious. Were the people right to be concerned about Joel and Abiah? Yeah, you couldn't trust them. They were judges to try to help stabilize the society in Israel. But you know what? They didn't, fall after, they didn't go after their father. We think of Samuel as a great hero of the faith. Samuel really should be a great hero for us, but his sons fell away. Isn't that interesting here? I want to throw this out. There's an interesting pattern in the book of 1 Samuel. There's an interesting pattern. You have men, listen, this isn't in your notes, but if you want to write it on the side, listen to this. There's an interesting pattern in 1 Samuel. You find men who were chosen by God, like Samuel, okay? Samuel was chosen by God. Remember, he heard that voice. And he said, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Remember that? And God selected him to be really a, that great prophet uh, and also judge. Also, another man that was chosen by God was Saul himself. Okay, Saul was chosen from the tribe of Benjamin to be Israel's first king. Okay? And then who was the other person in the book of 1 Samuel that God chose? David. David. Out of the sheep coats, right? Out of the sheepfold. Yeah, he, he was anointed to become the, the next king of Israel, okay? But with each of these chosen men, there's also, there's a pattern. There you've got chosen men, but you also have failed successors. Failed successors. In other words, those that came after 
uh, these men. For example, uh, Samuel, uh, his, uh, actually go to Eli. Eli, his sons failed. Okay? Hophni and Phinehas. In fact, they were even killed in battle. But they were, they were lewd, corrupt priests, if you will. Okay? His successors failed them. Samuel's sons also failed. And then Saul's sons even failed. Meaning this, we think of Jonathan, I think very highly of him, but they fell as well in battle, largely because of their father's sins, his rebellion. But nonetheless, we have this, this repeating here that you got men chosen by God, but as great as they were and their strengths that they were, they failed. Okay, so you see this pattern repeated, and you can even see that in David's life as well. David had great sons, and yes, we could say Solomon, even he went off the deep end. But look at David's family, Absalom, Amnon. I mean, it was just a mess in the family, okay? So you, you're seeing this cycle in this pattern in the book of 1 Samuel and into in, in 2 Samuel as well, okay? So going back to that question, why did the people call for a king? Number one, Samuel's sons were corrupt. Number two, they desired to be like other nations. They desired to be like other nations. Look with me in verse 5. And it says, and they said unto him, the, the elders to Samuel, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons not, uh, walk not in thy way. Now make us a king to judge us like all the other nations. Okay? Have you ever heard the expression, oh, you know, the grass is greener on the other side? You know, it's like, man, look at all these other nations. They have been there in the land of Canaan now, the land of promise for a couple hundred years. They were more or less settled, and they're seeing the other nations that were not, some were driven out, not all though. And they said, man, this isn't so bad. And they're seeing how, look at these countries, they're doing this. Why can't we be like that? The grass is greener on the other side. Uh, sometimes you've heard the old adage, grass is greener on the other side. That's sometimes because it's uh, over a septic tank, you know. <laughs> but you got to be careful what you wish for, right? So that's the other thing. Desire to be like the nations, to be run like them, to be governed like them. They want to be fit in, okay? And they also, the third reason why they call for a king is they desired a king for security. They desired a king for security. Look with me in verse 20, 1 Samuel 8, verse 20. And they said here that we may be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles, Okay, so they desired a king for security. They want to be safe. They want to be protected. Okay, is the idea, which that is a natural desire. I mean, we want uh, whatever you hear on the news or we want secure boards. We want to live in a relative safety. You don't want to be, you know, having to put bars and everything on your windows, you know, if you don't have to. Right. We want to live in a secure environment. But this is what they wanted. Here's the reality of it. They had two major enemies uh, at that specific time in 1 Samuel, and that was the Ammonites. The Ammonites lived in the east, what is modern-day Jordan today, the Ammonites. And then on the west side, it was the Philistines, the arch enemy of Israel. And, of course, we know Goliath from Gath came from there. So you're, they were surrounded, in a sense, by these enemies, the Ammonites on the east, the Philistines on the west. In doing that, they desired a, uh, a king for security, for military and agricultural security. Because why? Yes, to protect them from these armies, but really they also needed protection over the, the land, over what they were growing, uh, the, the, the produce, for example, or the, the livestock that they had. Because what was happening, you can find this later on in chapter 12, that the Ammonites were actually uh, taking their fields 
and also their cattle. There was, there was definitely some things. And by the way, if your fields and cattle are taken over by the enemy, what happens to your, your reserves? They go down. Okay, that's insecurity. Okay, so this is very, very important as we see this. So this is why, this is among, these are the main reasons why the people wanted a king. But let's talk this. Was it God's plan for Israel to have a king in the first place? That's an interesting question. If you said yes, let me ask you, this is, this is just laid back tonight. How would we say yes, it was God's plan for Israel to have a king? How would we say no, it was not God's plan for Israel to have a king? Well, guess what? I raised my hand for both because they're both right. <laughs> okay, so what do I mean by that? God did plan for Israel to have a king. Where do we find that? Hold your place in 1 Samuel 8 and go with me to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy, the, it's, um, the meaning of Deuteronomy is like the second law, their second telling of the law. But this is how Moses was preparing the children of Israel as they were about ready to enter into the land of Canaan. And there would come a time when Israel would have a king. God knew that and God planned for that. And so, but there were certain criteria, though, about having a king. What was that? This is really interesting. Go with me to Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14, it says here, When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shall dwell therein, and shall say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are, are about me, thou shalt in any wise set him a king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose, one from among thy brethren, thou shalt uh, set a king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. Okay? So, God did have a plan in there for Israel to eventually have a king. But it came with certain uh, instructions, if you will. Certain instructions. What were those instructions? Number one, the king was to be chosen by God. Was to be chosen by God. Now, skip ahead in your mind's eye to like First and Second Kings or the Chronicles. And uh, you find this, that you find the first couple of kings that were definitely chosen by God. Saul was, David definitely was, and, Sa and Solomon. And there were a few other sprinklings uh, that were in the, like Jehu, for example. Jehu, that fierce driver, he was a wicked king, but God did cho choose him. But you find a lot of other kings that got in there that should not have been in there. Okay, it was a, it was a mess. And so, anyways, the first thing is that the king was to be chosen by God, is, is to be God's choice, okay? The second criteria for a king was they were supposed to be an Israelite, one of their own. They were supposed to be an Israelite. In other words, they were not supposed to have a Babylonian or an Egyptian come to be their, their king. That was not the idea. But the king was to be one of their own, an Israelite. Also, we see that, letter C, that the king was not to imitate other nations. They were not to imitate other nations. And we kind of mentioned this before, that the, the people of Israel, they go to Samuel, hey, we want to be like all the, all the rest. We want to be like all the other nations. And so what does this look like? Okay, let's dig a little deeper into Deuteronomy 17. Look with me in verse 16. Here's some things that the king should not do. Pay attention, verse 16. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt, to the end that they should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord has said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Remember, they're out of Egypt, okay? 
Verse 17, neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart not turn away, neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. Okay, so he was not to imitate nations by what? Collecting horses, gathering horses, wives or money. All right, horses, wives or money. Okay, Uh, why horses? Anyone have a guess? Why why was there a a call not to collect horses? What do you think? There's a verse that says, Saw trust in horses, son, trust the chariot, but we will trust in the name. Absolutely. Did you hear Woody quoting that verse? Okay. So what does that imply? Some trust in horses, some in chariots. Put those two together and what do you get? Warfare. Okay. He was, a, he was basically multiplying his army, doing it his own strength. How can I build up the troops? This is the idea. How can I build up my reserves? How can I build up my weaponry, so to speak? Horses were used, yes, in farming, things like that. But ultimately, horses were primarily used in royal services or in in warfare. That was the primary uses of back in ancient land. Okay? Also, wives. Don't multiply wives. Oh, getting ahead of ourselves. But what happened to David? He has six wives. And Solomon had what? Too many. (laughs) Could you imagine Solomon's visa bill? I'll leave it there. (laughs) Now you know how Hobby Lobby got started. All right. (laughs) Moving on. I love my wife, by the way. So (laughs) I'm glad I only have one wife. (laughs) Praise God. And I love her. All right. So anyways, having horses, that was a symbol of power, by the way. To have more wives in the ancient world was a symbol of power. Okay? If you have a lot of wives... It shows your strength. And also money. Yeah, if you're the king, you have money at your disposal. You collect it, you're, you're more and more powerful. And so this is what they were not supposed to do. This is what the other nations were doing. Israel, you're not going to be like that. In all this, Israel was to be distinct from all other nations, okay? Um, one thing is, I think it's in the side of your notes there, that Samuel uh, warned the people of future problems. Uh, go back with, well, let me, uh, yeah, hold your place in Deuteronomy 17. We'll come back to it in a second. But in, um, back in first, uh, first Samuel 8, it says in verse, starting verse 10 through 18, you can kind of browse through there, that Samuel actually warns the people that if you have a king, this is what he's going to do to you. Verse 10, it says, And Samuel told all the words of the Lord of the people and asked him a king. And he said, This will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He shall... Take your sons and appoint them for himself, and his chariot shall be for his horsemen, and some shall run before his chariots. And he goes through this whole list. Uh, those that are going to work like as um, bakers, for example, work in his vineyards. Uh, he'll take the tenth of your seed. He'll take everything. He'll take whoever he can. Uh, he'll take of your sheep and of your servants. And so, in other words, he's going to do all these things. He's going to take, 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 and take. Let me just say this. A government, almost by default, what does it do? It takes, takes, takes. Okay, and so Samuel through the Lord is is um, is basically warning Israel. Now, there's two key words that are in those verses there in uh, in First Samuel. There's two key words about this problem, and the first word is this: He will take. All right. If you if, underline that, I haven't done it myself. Maybe I'll give someone a project right now from verses 10 to 18 in First Samuel 8. Underline how many times you see the word take, that he will take, the king will take. Okay? I'll give you just a moment to do that. 
In other words, that the way that Samuel is writing that, it's on purpose. It's highlighting the king is going to do this. He's going to take, 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 take. All right. Anyone have a count yet on how many times the word take is there? Maybe we can't count that fast. I don't know. <laughs> it's several times. Six. You have six times. I, like I said, that's an emphasis. Every time you see that, that's an emphasis on how much. Uh, his, his point is this. Your life is going to change. So the first word is this. Take. He will take. The king will take. Now, what about the people? They will eventually in verse 18 or verse 17. And ye shall be his servants. You're going to serve. You will serve. He's going to take you, the people, you're going to serve. That's the end result of this. You will serve the king. That's the idea. And so with that, that's, that's an interesting little uh, picture, if you will, of what life is going to be like with a king. You guys want a king? Okay. And God says, yeah, let him have it. But this is what it's going to look like. I'm just warning you. Have you ever told your kids or grandkids, maybe they're wanting to get this new car or whatever else like that. And you take a look at it and he says, this isn't the right one for them. All right. <laughs> or whatever thing they want to buy, this ain't the right one. And you can say, okay, you can get it, but it's, you're going to have to, what about putting gas? I'm talking to Linnea about this. What about putting gas in the tank? What about insurance? What about maintenance? Oil changes, all that kind of stuff. Everything comes with it. And you're, of course, watching out for other drivers. There's a warning there, but sometimes you get that old thing. We, oh, we just want it all. We want the king. We don't care what the cost is. And God, in his, I would say, in his mercy and grace, gave him a little bit of a warning. This is what it's going to look like, okay? So go back, though, with me to Deuteronomy 17. There's one more thing that the king was supposed to do, or to have, I should say. The king was to be chosen by God to be an Israelite, not to imitate the nations. And then one very important thing. One very important thing. Look at me in Deuteronomy 17 and verse 18. And it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests and Levites. And it shall be with him and he shall read therein all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do, to, to do them that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in the kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. So one another thing, one, another thing that the king was supposed to do or to have was a copy of the law, a copy of the Torah, the copy of the commandments of God's word. So he was to have a copy of it, but not just have a copy of it. He was to read it and to obey it, to keep it, to guard it. Uh, he was the protector. The king was to be the protector of God's word. Okay? It's interesting. This is getting a little bit later on. The kings of Israel, that practice had gone by the wayside. We really don't see a lot of that recorded, but it did appear in a very dramatic way by who? Does anyone remember? There was a king, a good king of Israel, who found a copy of the law. Who was that? Not Asa, Josiah. Josiah, when they were cleaning out the temple, okay? So anyway, so this is an important thing. In other words, if Israel was to have a king, they had to be chosen by God, had to be an Israelite, not be like the nations, and they had to keep the word of God. They had to keep the law. So God says, yes, you can have a king, but you got to do it my way. What was happening in 1 Samuel 8? Now we'll turn back there. 1 Samuel, 
Everything was different than that. It was almost the opposite. What was happening here? Look with me again in verse 5. Uh, 1 Samuel 8, verse 5. And the people said unto him, Behold, thou art old, thy son's walking on the ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Uh, and so in doing that, they were desiring a king. And this idea really is this. They weren't just desiring it. Hey, we would like a king. They were actually, the Hebrew is very direct. They were demanding it. This is very strong. It's a strong idea. They were actually demanding a king. Not like God's way. Even with God's warning, they want it done their way. That was the idea. Okay? So what was the problem, though, in desiring or demanding a king? What was the problem in that? Number one, it had a sinful motivation. A sinful motivation. The motivation behind it was sinful. It was, it was selfish, if you will. But it was sinful. That was their motivation behind it. They weren't trusting in God at all. Okay? That's number one. It had a sinful motivation. Number two, it was selfish at its timing. Selfish at its timing. In other words, God did promise them to give a king eventually, but was that the right time for it? No. It was not the right time. Absolutely not. And so very, very important we see that. A lot of times, isn't, it, isn't there a virtue in learning how to wait you know, the best things come to those who wait, as the adage goes. How many times we miss out on the great blessings or the best of God's blessings because we're in a hurry. We want it now. <laughs> we want that deal now. You can't leave here. You know, that deal's going to go by, you know, at midnight. You know, we feel pressed to do that. But we got to think, is this really God's time? They were, self they were selfish in that. Number, letter C, it was cowardly in its spirit. It was really cowardly to ask for a king this way. And I'll explain that in a moment. So the problem with desiring a king was it was cowardly in its spirit. They were cowards in that. Why? Remember I said earlier, why, why did they want a king? Samuel's sons were corrupt. Uh, they want to be like the nations and they want a security. They want a king to help protect them. Okay. Which are legitimate reasons, but the timing was off. Motivation was wrong and they were cowardly. Why here? Why? This, this is why it's cowardly because demanding a king to solve their problems is the easy way out. They wanted an easy way out of their problems. If we just had a king, our problems would be taken care of. That's, a cow that's cowardly. Doing their own strength. Willing to pass the buck to someone else to take care of their problems for them. Folks, I think this is, and I kind of said it earlier, that even with uh, our, our system, it's not, it's not perfect here in the United States, but a lot of people put their faith and trust in man. To solve the problem. If we just had the right person in office, whatever office that may be, if we just had that right person, all our problems would be solved. We'd have no more taxes. Everyone would get a free cell phone. And what, I mean, whatever. There's all kinds of crazy stuff out there. But ultimately, so many people, including Christians, are putting their trust in man, in, 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 in politics or whatever it may be. Now, is there virtue in, in using those things? Absolutely. We should be wise and, and good stewards of those things. Absolutely. But ultimately, we need to be trusting the Lord in each step of the way. So demanding a king to solve their problems is the easy way out. That's cowardice, okay? So moving on here, the ultimate error of the people was really their attitude. The ultimate error of the people was their attitude and failure to recognize God as their true king, okay? Ultimately, the error of the people was their attitude and failure to recognize God as their true king, 
Uh, look with me in verse 6, actually, starting verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people, in all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I sh should not reign over them. So this is the idea. The error of the people was their attitude. And they failed to recognize God as the true king. They had a king. They had a king. Who was the king? It was God himself. What better king could they have? Okay? Uh, so this is very, very, very important. And so in doing that, this decision or demand changed the course of Israel's history. That's next in your notes there. The decision changed the course of Israel's history. This moment right here that we're reading changed everything for Israel. This was to be, this was more than a change in leadership. Okay, we have uh, priests and judges. Now we're going to have a king. Okay? It was a change in government and society to be like other nations. And here's the kicker on this. This type of kingship really goes against the Israelite faith and history. What do you think about it? This really goes against Israel's faith and history. They had a trust in the one true God. They had a history of faith and believing God, and God delivered them so many times. We see that especially throughout Egypt. We see that through the wilderness. We see that when Joshua comes into Canaan, takes over the area. We see that throughout the book of Judges. God over and over and over displays that he is their true king. And now they want something different. This really goes, this king goes against the true faith in, of Israel. So Israel's identity, this is uh, next in your notes. Israel's identity was found in three things. Number one, being chosen by God. Remember, Deuteronomy chapter 7, God says, I did not choose you because you were the greatest or the strongest of nations. What? I cho chose you because why? I loved you. Okay, they were a chosen people unto God. They were God's uh, peculiar treasure or uh, personal treasure, okay, is the idea. Uh, they were also covenanted at Mount Sinai. Here they were given the law, they were given the Torah. What other nation on earth did God have such a relationship with? They were a special people, a chosen people unto himself. So they were chosen by God. They were coveted at Mount Sinai with the law. And then they were led by godly judges. They were they're led by godly judges. Now, this was in doubt. This was in doubt. What was going to happen next? They're going in a total different direction uh, from this. This is, this is really amazing. It's a new Israel. So with this, there's a problem of impatience. The people were impatient. Like I said, they were relying on their own timing. The people's desire or demand consisted of unthankfulness and discontent of the people, and they were dissatisfied with their present condition when God was their king. Let me read that a little slower, because this is really, really important. The problem that the children of Israel had at this point here in 1 Samuel 8, they had the problem of impatience. They desired, then their desire was really a, a sign of unthankfulness, and they were discontent. They were dissatisfied in their present condition, because God was their king. God, you're not meeting the needs that we think should be met in the way we should, they think we should be met. So this is, this is the dilemma. Instead of turning to God, they look for human solutions. Very telling. So in this, God told Samuel not to take this rejection personally. He says then again in verse 7, that they have not rejected you, Samuel, they've rejected me. That, that was the ultimate thing. They didn't reject Samuel. They rejected, uh, they rejected the Lord. With this, I say that he, God told Samuel not to take this rejection personally. 
And this includes his family ties. Think of that. They didn't just reject Samuel's leadership. They also rejected his son's leader, even though they were bad. They kind of affected his sons, maybe in a lesser degree, but they also were rejected too. It was kind of a family affair. Kind of interesting when you think about that. And this was really the same story as the wilderness wanderings. How many times in Israel's history did they say, God, we really don't want you to lead us, and they want to do things their own way. Look with me in verse 8. This is why. According to all the works which they had done since the day that I brought them out out of the land of Egypt unto this day, wherein they have forsaken me and served other gods, so, uh, so do they also unto thee. In other words, just as Israel, here's the parallel God is saying, just as Israel, think of the golden calf. They followed me for a while, and then they got better ideas, and they decided to worship a golden calf. Even as they, their hearts were turned to that, even so, now the people are turning their thoughts away from God to serve a leader in their own right. In a sense, idolatry is what was going on here. So this was the same story. History repeats itself is the idea. So God allowed them to have, have a king, but Israel, or excuse me, but Samuel gave them a warning. Okay, it says in verse 9, Now therefore hearken unto their voice, Another, listen to them, give them what they want, howbeit yet protest solemnly unto them. In other words, warn them, and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. That's what we went over a few moments ago, how Samuel went through this whole list of this is what's going to happen. He's going to take, 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 and take. And then you're going to serve. <laughs> That's what life is going to be like. So he did that. So in doing that, was this God's will? In a way, we say this is God's permissive will. In other words, in God's sovereignty, God allows even the evil deeds of people to accomplish his divine will. In other words, God was going to use this situation to reveal himself that ultimately he was the one they needed to trust in. When you look at Samuel, or, or excuse me, Saul, when he comes on the scene, things look really good for a while. And guess what? They said, man, this isn't what we bargained for. This isn't what we signed up for. And so they're going to realize they need to serve the one true God. And so we're going to see history, history repeating itself. So in that, God would give them the king they wanted, but not necessarily the king they needed. So this is very important. So what was the end result? He warns them, and then here's where we conclude tonight. The people refused to heed Samuel's warnings. Look with me uh, in verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, Nay, we will have a king reign over us. Okay, and then eventually they, Samuel rehearsed all these years. He told the Lord, and then he said, go every man to his own city. Okay, so that's where we're left at. So the people didn't want to listen. And they said, no, we want it anyway. And that's going to set the stage up for something very dramatic to happen that we're going to cover next week. So what do we learn from this? The failure of God's people to exercise courageous and patient faith results in really challenges to the kingship of Christ. If Christ will be our king, why, are we should, why should we think otherwise in our service to him? Failure of God's people to exercise courage and faith and patient faith results in challenges to the kingship of Christ. I think the, if you want to sum up this chapter in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 8, it's simply this. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> That's the bottom line. So lesson today, three points. Number one, let God be your king. Let God be your king. Let him rule over you and serve him. Let God be your king. Number two, remember that God is in control. When it looks like things aren't going the way they should be, the leaders are failing, 
the nations look more appealing, and our security is a little bit shaky. Remember that God is in control. And number three, patiently trust his plan. Patiently trust his plan. Patiently, because why? His timing is good. In other words, his way is best, right? God's way is best. Patiently, tr- So let God be your king. Remember that God is in control. Patiently trust his plan. His way is best. Because why? God knows your needs and he will provide if you allow him to be your king. Reminds us of the verse, Matthew 6, 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Don't lose your crown. Man, we haven't even talked about King Saul exactly yet. So this is all setting the stage of how King Saul became king. So next week, we're going to dig into, we're going to be introduced to King Saul. And uh, we'll try to do a little bit of uh, Bible geography too, because there's a couple places in Israel that I think is worth seeing. So I'm going to try to take you as much as I can through the study. We'll take you to Israel to see these places where they occurred. Until then, we pray that the Lord will bless us, bless his word.